0: This evening we're looking at the Belgic Confession Together, Article 7, and the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture as it is taught uh, therein. Article 7, page 157 of the Forms and Prayers book. We believe that this Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely, and that everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. For since the entire manner of service which God requires of us is described in it at great length, No one, even an apostle or an angel from heaven, as Paul says, ought to teach other than what the holy scriptures have already taught us. For since it is forbidden to add to or subtract from the word of God, this plainly demonstrates that the teaching is perfect and complete in all respects. Therefore, we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to the divine writings. Nor may we put custom, nor the majority, nor age, nor the passage of time or persons, nor counsels, decrees, or official decisions above the truth of God, for truth is above everything else. For all human beings are liars by nature and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore we reject with all our hearts everything that does not agree with this infallible rule, as we are taught to do by the apostles when they say, test the spirits to see if they are of God. And also, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Please turn with me to Acts 17, if you're able. Acts 17, verses 1 through 12 is the first of three readings that we'll have. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. And we'll end our reading from Acts 17 there. Turn to 1 John, if you will, chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the Spirit of Antichrist, the Antichrist rather, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And finally, our text, the passage will be most closely with, Galatians chapter 1, verse 17 verses. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a servant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from men nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Thus far our reading. Beloved brothers and sisters and boys and girls, Uh, There's a crisis of confidence in the church today. And that crisis of confidence centers on the Word of God. And we could encapsulate it by asking the question is it enough? Is the Word of God enough? It appears that many people, many churches, think not. Why do I say that? Well, I'll just speak in general terms of some trends that we could observe if we were to study churches. It's not particular to one denomination. But you can see that ordinary worship services tend to get downplayed. And uh, the special events, yes, people get excited about that. But, but the ordinary Sunday services are easily missed for any number of reasons. You can also see this trend that the reading in scripture is quite minimal. Or the reading of scripture in the service, rather, is quite minimal. And uh, sermons uh, may be long, that's true. You go to your standard evangelical church. Probably a longer sermon than what we had this morning, for example, um, but often filled with illustrations, stories, emotion, and lacking in exposition. What about our church? I say our church. I mean this church and the one I pastor at. Very similar. Um, we have many good practices, and we can praise the Lord for that. As we look at our liturgy, there's 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 a lot of scripture, for example. Um, still we have the tendencies, the troubling tendencies that uh, suggest this crisis is not too far from us. Now, I've never heard somebody complain about the amount of Scripture I've read, even when I've read multiple chapters at one time, at least they've not said that to me. But I have heard comments like, the liturgy is boring, and there's not enough going on in church, right? There's not enough people up front doing things, it's just you the whole time, one guy. Not enough visuals in church, not enough excitement, Does that at all sound familiar to you? Well, what are we to make of this? Well, let's acknowledge that we do have a natural tendency within us towards more. We want to see more. We want more pictures. We want more props, these kinds of things. We want to hear more. We'd love to hear the audible voice of God. And we want to know more, if we're being honest with ourselves, by nature. We'd love to receive some special insights. Really, I think we all want to be like the Apostle Paul. You know, to have that Damascus Road experience like he had, something similar to that, receiving revelation directly from Jesus Christ. Well, in that context, the goal this afternoon is to confirm and strengthen our confidence in the Word of God as we have it in the Bible. So I preach to you God's Word with the topic, the theme, the Bible is enough. We're going to see that the Bible is enough to be saved in Christ and to live. In Christ, two things. So first, to be saved in Christ. You know the Bible doesn't teach everything. That's inherent in the word sufficient. The Bible just doesn't teach us everything about everything. Um, Example I'll use throughout the sermon, some of you just graduated. I'm going to address you a couple times throughout the sermon. Um, And even if you haven't just graduated from high school, put yourself back in that time when you did, if you're already past that. Um, or look ahead to that if you 're not quite there yet when you when you graduate from high school, you need to make a lot of decisions about what to study or uh, to apprentice for, maybe you know what kind of job to take or, or to avoid. The Bible doesn't teach you about that. The Bible doesn't teach you about the ins and outs of photosynthesis. maybe that intrigues you. you're not going to learn about that from the Bible or how to differentiate between different animal species or how to build a rocket or how to play sports all sorts of things in this world that the Bible doesn't teach us about. And that's because these things are outside the scope of Scripture. Well, what is the scope of Scripture? What does Scripture teach? Our Article 7, we confess that Scripture teaches everything one must believe to be saved. We could summarize that this way. Creation, the fall, redemption, and renewal, all taught throughout Scripture. And you just look at the opening of our letter to the Galatians, and you see this in our text here. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Right? Creation may be not so much there, but certainly the rest of it we see. Creation being assumed. We see the fall there, speaking about our sins. He says, uh, Paul says that he gave himself for us. That speaks to redemption. And so because he gave himself for us, grace to you and peace from God who who is your Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. More on redemption. Who is delivering us or rescuing us from this present evil age and to whom will be the glory forever. And that speaks to the renewal and, and the restoration of the new creation, right? The whole message of salvation you could say, encapsulate it in just a few verses. It's beautiful. Well, then why is there controversy? Because if you've paid attention to our text, you could see the controversy just leaping off the page. There's clearly controversy in Galatia. Well, controversy exists because others are teaching differently. Verse 6, 7, 8, 9... Speak to us of this. That there is a different gospel being presented in Galatia. A distorted gospel. A contrary gospel. You say, well, why would people do that? Why would they preach something different? To suit their preferences. To make the message more palatable to certain people. That's what we see throughout the book. You do a study of Galatians, you see this. Example, chapter 4, verse 9. Paul writes of those who are turning back from the way of the Spirit to worldly principles. And why are they doing that? Because of the influence of others. Or chapter 5, verse 7, and what follows after that. He says there's some who preach the need for circumcision. They preach that as a requirement. Um, so that they would be less offensive. Even persuading new disciples of Jesus to turn from their newfound faith. What a shame. What a tragedy. And then again in chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 12. Paul speaks of the temptation to preach the need for circumcision. And he says it's attractive. That's an attractive temptation because it helps people avoid persecution. And it gives them something to boast about. So it's throughout these six chapters. And even, we're told, this is remarkable, Peter and Barnabas, even them, they get caught up in this. Chapter 2, verse 11. They stopped eating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles. Why? Why? Because they were afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. It was this negative peer pressure that you know, got them to do something unfaithful. So so how does this tempt us today? Are we tempted to preach a different gospel? Well, maybe we want to avoid outright heresy we're we're, we're wise enough and faithful enough not to do that, but, but what are the temptations we face? Well, how about emphasizing different teachings that are more attractive? Easier to this world. And sometimes the question of how biblical they are is secondary because it works. A right? very pragmatic approach. Maybe in our preaching we're tempted as preachers to tell more stories that people enjoy and less teaching, like hard teaching that they find difficult. Maybe there's an imbalanced focus on love. Of course, love is key and, and good to talk about, but an imbalanced focus on love with no talk of sin. I mean, how do we even know what love is apart from acknowledgement of sin? How about adding teachings that satisfy popular urgings? Just think of the way certain people speak in the Christian world about a particular brand of social justice. Social justice in itself, a neutral term, but, but there's a particular brand of that that's problematic. Or instead of adding teachings, maybe subtracting teachings that are uncomfortable, that are countercultural. Think of teachings on human sexuality, for example. The church, the biblical uh, position is so out of touch with where society is at as a general rule. These are temptations we face. But what is our confession? What do we say? What do we say is a biblical response? Far be it from us to deviate from God's word. See, the word teaches the one true gospel of Christ, and that's what we are to stick to. Because as soon as one strays from this true gospel, what does Paul say here? It will be accursed. It will experience the curse of eternal judgment. So we must be careful, careful to reject any extra-biblical teaching and just hold fast to God's Word. The Word of God is what we need. Article 7 brings that out well, that the Word is what we need. Actually, if you were to look back at Article 5, it begins saying this. We receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. Those three words, regulating, founding, and establishing, pretty well covers it, doesn't it? These are what we need. Article 7 says, For since it is forbidden to add to or subtract from the Word of God, this plainly demonstrates that the teaching is perfect and complete in all respects. And the fourth paragraph says, Therefore we must not consider anything else, and there's a whole list of different things, Above the truth of God, for truth is above everything else. See, the truth of God is what we need, and the truth of God is in Christ. It's in His Word, most fully revealed in Christ. Christ who is revealed to us throughout the Scriptures. Because in Christ we see the way of salvation. And this truth is above everything else. What are some examples of how this looks like, what this looks like? Well, we read one from Acts 17. Acts 17 we read of the Bereans. Translation used here said they were fair-minded. A lot of other translations will say they are noble. And why? Because they receive the word with eagerness. Because they examine the scriptures daily. And what was the result of that? It was that many believed. Many believed. Second example, the Apostle Paul from our text here in Galatians 1. You know, Paul used to be very different. Uh, If your Bibles are there, look at verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1. Paul used to be zealous for the traditions of his father. Fathers, tradition was was supreme for him. There was nothing more important than tradition for Paul. We like tradition a little bit, right? Too much tradition is not a good thing. But then the gospel was revealed to him by Jesus himself, and everything was changed. And and so the word of God transformed Paul, transformed him from this violent persecutor of of the church to a confident promoter of the church. And you see that throughout this letter. He confronts Peter in front of all the people, chapter 2, Peter who's this pillar of the church, but Peter who's doing something wrong against the word of God, and and Paul calls him out for that. He calls out in chapter 4 those tempted to turn back to worldly principles. He calls out the persecutors and the preachers of circumcision, chapter 5. And he calls out the boasters in chapter 6. Now you might be hearing this, all this calling out and confronting, and you think, ah, Paul himself sounds a little arrogant. Hmm. But brothers and sisters, he makes this clear at the end of the book, the letter. He says, all I boast in is the cross of Christ. He's confident, yes, but his confidence doesn't reside in himself. His confidence is only in Jesus. He's a servant of Christ, right back to our text, chapter 1. That's what he says. I'm not worried about pleasing men, first of all, because I am a servant of Christ. And so I speak the gospel of Christ, the word of Christ, the truth of Christ. That's what matters. The truth is above everything else. One more example that's very appropriate to fit in with Paul here is Martin Luther. When Martin Luther came to faith through the Spirit's working in him as he read Paul's letter to Rome, especially in chapter 1 where Paul writes that the righteous will live by faith, right, apart from the law, but by faith. And the result for Luther as he understood the good news of Jesus was that he threw off the oppressive yoke of the church's extra-biblical traditions. And he testified that the truth of Scripture is above everything else, even councils and decrees and official decisions in the majority position of the time. And he was summoned before an imperial court. The court was called the Diet, and uh, it was in a place called the Worms, so the Diet of Worms, and he was told to recant his teachings, to take them back. But Luther didn't see any proof, any biblical proof, that his, his theses, his views were wrong. And so he said, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Beloved, the Bible doesn't teach us everything about everything, that's true. But it does contain all that we need to know and believe in order to be saved. It's so all who make the good confession that Jesus is Lord and, and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead. They will be saved. And you know, this is what life's all about. This is what it's about for us, regardless of whatever work you may do, regardless of whatever vacations we may take, regardless of whatever relationships we have. This is what life's all about. And this is what it's all about for our children and our grandchildren. And we think about that a lot don't we, if they're straying? Even if they're not, but particularly it's troubling if they're straying. That they receive received the promise of baptism. And we anticipate hearing their profession, their response to their baptism. And at the end of our lives, nothing else matters. Which is why so many seniors, this is what preoccupies their mind and their heart and their prayers, as they lie on their beds. Have we heard the word? That's what matters. And have we responded to the word in faith? And so have you. The Bible is what we need. Because the Bible is enough to be saved in Christ. So we must stick so closely to this word. But also, the Bible is what we need to live in Christ. That as well. Article 7 goes on to say that. That the entire manner of service which God requires of us is described in it at great length. And we also confess that the teaching in God's Word is is perfect and complete in all respects. And some people might say to that, I don't know, is that really true? The Bible seems insufficient. It's just words on a page, after all, written a long time ago, thousands of years ago. As I look at the Bible, it contains a lot of obscure references to people and places and practices that aren't familiar to us in the 21st century. I'd rather be like Paul. I'd rather receive direct revelation from Jesus, special insight. Have a spectacular experience of God's revelation to me. That's the motivation behind a series of books that have sold very well over the last couple decades called the Jesus Calling books. Perhaps you've come across that, extremely popular. And the author shares uh, messages in these books that she claims come directly from the Lord. So I'll let her explain to you what happened. She says, I began to wonder if I too could receive messages during my times of communing with God. I had been writing in prayer journals for years, but that was one way of communication. I did all the talking. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. I decided to listen to God with pen in hand, writing down whatever I believe he was saying. I felt awkward the first time I tried this, but I received a message. It was short, biblical, and appropriate. It addressed topics that were current in my life, trust, fear, and closeness to God. I responded by writing in my prayer journal. Now, I want you to hear what she's saying. She's saying the Bible is good. And in other places, I've read her defend its inerrancy and its infallibility all things that we would say amen to. But what she's not saying is that the Bible is sufficient. She says, I know that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more, he phrase: I yearned for more. And So another man, Justin Peters, describes this problem well as he speaks to this. He's dedicated much of his life to speaking to these things. He says, people want to have an experience, to hear a still, small voice, to have dreams and visions. And so they You've heard that. God spoke to me and he told me to tell you that. But Peter's goes on to say, this is the source of every form of theological mischief plaguing the church today. And that's true. I think that's true. It's all rooted, all the theological mischief that we see and there's quite a lot of it, it's all rooted in a lack of confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture. Now I can imagine somebody challenging this a little bit and saying, but something really did happen to these people. You're not denying them their experience, are you? You know, chalk it up to like Reformed skepticism. Or even, we can go bigger than that, like Western Christian skepticism. Well, we, to that we can say, no, we're not denying that they had an experience. But lots of people have experiences. Muslims have experiences. Buddhists have experiences. So then the point being, we cannot evaluate Scripture by our experiences, but Scripture is the standard by which we evaluate everything else. And what does Scripture say? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Do not go beyond what is written, among other things. So, beloved, we don't need anything else. The Bible is enough. Believe it. And believe also this, that God is not being stingy with us by merely giving us words. So in responding to the Jesus Calling phenomenon, I have one more quote for you. Tim Challies, perhaps you know that name, beautifully articulates the perspective that we ought to have on the Bible when he says this. The sufficiency of the Bible means that we can be supremely satisfied in the voice of God as it comes through the Word of God. We don't need to yearn for anything else. That's in response to the Jesus Calling lady. The Bible is sufficient to live a life that honors God, but but also a life that is deeply intimate with God. The Bible is not abstract or distant. It is personal communication from a personal God. We have no reason to think that we will find a better or deeper experience of God anywhere else, at least on this side of heaven. And I say amen to that. The Bible's personal, brothers and sisters, and it's intimate. And how is that possible? Because of the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit of God takes the Word, right? Books, uh, uh, words in a book, words spoken. And, and the Spirit of God takes that and He speaks to your heart. And He applies it to your life circumstances. And He calms you and He convicts you and He assures you and He prompts you. God speaks to you individually through His Word. And so are you searching for God's will for your life? Aren't we all searching for that? Well, we need to look in the Bible. You know, not just for all things related to salvation, but also all things necessary for living the Christian life. So again, think of the recent grad. Perhaps that's you. If not, put yourself in their shoes. A new school, perhaps a new job, maybe a new home, maybe a new church home. Lots of choices, lots of new things. How do you choose? Do you choose by the, the inspiration of the Spirit as the apostles were inspired to write Scripture? Or, or do you choose perhaps by the illumination of the Spirit as He opens your heart and mind? Right. In other words, do we need a, a bright neon sign as it were pointing to the answer? Do we need our version of Gideon's golden fleece? Do we need a, a voice that breaks through the quiet of the night and speaks audibly to us? Or, is there a place for spirit-led wisdom? For prayer-saturated decision-making, planning and discerning? For being prompted by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit in a certain direction that agrees with what has already been revealed in God's Word? This is what we're called to. To constantly discern the will of God. What is His good, pleasing, and perfect will? We do that by looking to what He has said to us to the objective revelation on the pages of Scripture. And as an encouragement, let me share this from Second Peter 1. Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And So it's true that we can feel that we're missing out sometimes on all the spectacular revelations that could otherwise be available to us. Right, but that kind of thinking belongs to the fallen human nature, and nature, and we need to see that. The reality, the Belgian Confession says, is that we are vain and liars. Now, if you're tempted to say that sounds a little too harsh, I'd encourage you to turn to Jeremiah 17, verse 9, which says the heart is deceitful above all things. See, that's the heart by nature. Our hearts, your heart, my heart, our hearts only work when they have been renewed by the Spirit of God when they are hearts that no longer are turned inward on ourselves, but look outside of ourselves to God. For salvation, trusting in Jesus, and also for the Christian life. Trusting the triune God, right? Trusting the wisdom of the Father in ordaining all things and providing for us as needed in body and soul. And and then also trusting the leading of the Spirit through the Word. So as we close, brothers and sisters, the Bible is enough. Don't entertain other teachings. Belgic quotes John at the end with that warning. First of all, he says, test the spirits, or it says, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Something we're called to do. To reject those that are not. And then instead, brothers and sisters, instead of going in that direction, give your, give your attention, give your focus to the objective word that will never deceive you, unlike those false spirits. Will never deceive you. And the word of God truly is a treasure. May we understand that and appreciate that. It's a it's a mind filled with treasure. Think of that imagery of a mind. Did you know that there are minds that have been worked for centuries, and their depths have not been fully plumbed, fully discovered? That's just a taste, just a little example of the more marvelous treasure that's found in Scripture and the inexhaustible depths of the Word of God. And all centered on Christ. Christ in whom are hidden, this Bible says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we can gain access to Christ and his treasures by the spirit of truth. Who leads us in the way of truth. And the spirit of truth does that because he's the author of this book. And so hear God speak to you today, brothers and sisters. Boys and girls, hear God speak to you today. And listen to God's word tomorrow and throughout this week and throughout your life. And you will find that his word is sufficient for you. Amen.